0: Welcome to Time Travelling Teamp, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha.
1: And I'm Paddy. This week we join the Doctor, Ben, Polly and Jamie as they arrive at the mysterious moon base and encounter an old enemy. We will be discussing each of the characters and giving our thoughts on the story as a whole.
0: We would also love to hear your thoughts on this story. So to join in on the discussion, you can check us out at Time, team, that's T-I-M-E Teamp, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can email us at Time at Teamproductions.com. Now,
1: though, over to Paddington for the story recap. Thank you. Episode 1. The Doctor manages to get the TARDIS back under control, and everyone takes a moment to get their breath back. Polly congratulates the Doctor on a job well done, but Ben points out that the area that they are looking at through the view screen is not Mars, as the Doctor had intended, but is actually the Moon. The Doctor is disappointed that he failed to land exactly where he wanted, and so he says that they should leave again. The others object to this and beg him for a chance to explore the outside for a bit. He reluctantly agrees but only allows them to go outside for half an hour and he then takes them to get some spacesuits. Jamie is excited as he hopes to meet the man on the moon. Once outside they take a look around and Polly says that she saw a glow over the horizon but Ben and the doctor say that it's probably just her eyes adjusting to the light. She then comments on the footwear of the spacesuit and the doctor points out that they help keep them grounded due to the moon's lighter gravity. The young trio begin to hop around but Jamie overdoes it and disappears beyond the ridge. They follow after him and come across an installation of some description. They also spot Jamie who was lying on the ground unconscious after he collided with one of the exterior doors to the installation. Suddenly, the doors open and two men emerge, also wearing spacesuits, and bring Jamie inside. The others make their way down to the door and make their way inside the installation. Inside, men of different nationalities are operating various workstations in what appears to be the central command centre for the installation, whose focus appears to be on the Earth. One of the men suddenly faints causing him to push a lever on his station that causes an alarm to go off. One of his colleagues helps him up and watches a strange black marking start to appear on his face, as if something was tracing his veins. The installation controller tells some of the others to take him down to the sick bay, but he is reminded that their doctor is also suffering from the strange affliction. He advises them to carry on as a relief doctor from Earth should be arriving soon. The controller, whose name is Hobson, then calls for a staff meeting to try and figure out the cause of the infection. The doctor, Ben and Polly are then brought in and introduced to Hobson, who is also told about Jamie. Pony requests to be allowed to go visit Jamie, and Hobson allows it, but requests that the doctor and Ben stay behind as he wants to see if they can offer some insight into the infection. They are brought to the main hub of the command centre, and the doctor realises that they have arrived at a weather control station, which is also the reason for the rough landing. He estimates that they have arrived in the year 2050, but the installation staff laugh and tell him that it's actually 2070. Hobson then proceeds to introduce the rest of the staff and their specialities, and shows how the Gravitron, which is what controls the weather, works. Suddenly, another alarm goes off and a signal from Earth comes through asking why they let a dangerous hurricane that they were guiding veer off course towards Hawaii. Hobson explains about the illness in the station. While they are waiting for the Earth based Controller, Nils, the radio operator, informs the group of that someone else is monitoring their communications. On a ship somewhere near the installation, now identified as Moon Base, a figure is listening in on the conversation as Hobson is told by Earth Control to send on whatever information they can about the virus and that they are to remain in quarantine until further notice. Hobson is not happy about this, but rallies the others to do what they can. He then allows Ben and the doctor to go down to the sickbay to visit Jamie. He is suffering from the effects of a concussion and a slight fever, and he rambles about the phantom piper. Polly informs the others that she has gathered that the piper he is talking about is a specter that appears before McCrimmon just before they die. Polly seems to have taken over the role of nurse, but the doctor cautions her not to get too close, just as she lays a hand on the forehead of one of the sick men, who is actually Evans, the doctor of the moonbase. The doctor says that there is something not quite right about the infection, but he can't quite figure it out. He sends Ben to be his eyes and ears in the command centre. Once he arrives there, he is given a cold welcome by Hobson, who is clearly becoming more stressed with each new setback. But Benoit, Hobson's second-in-command, intervenes and takes Ben up in his offer of help by sending him to assist in the food stores. Down in the food stores, Ralph the cook is doing an inventory and comes across a few damaged containers, which look like rats have been at them. He suddenly hears a sound in the room and calls out to see who was there. At first, there is no answer, and a shadow appears behind him, but then Ben arrives and Ralph admonishes him for sneaking around. He then sends Ben to look for some items at the back of the storeroom, but once he is alone, a metal arm reaches out and electrocutes him. His body is then dragged away before Ben returns. In the sickbay, the doctor shows Polly some silver paper he found, but before he can explain where he found it, the light's dim and he explains to a confused Polly about the moon base's artificial day and night cycle. Suddenly, Dr. Evans wakes up and screams about a silver hand coming towards him before collapsing dead. The doctor then goes to report this to Hobson. Once there, he sees Ben reporting Ralph's disappearance and tells him about Evans. Hobson refuses to report the death to Earth for fear that they will do more to impede the operations on the moon base. He says he will go down to investigate the body. In the sickbay, Polly is giving some water to Jamie, who passes out when he sees something behind Polly. She turns to see what it was and screams when she sees a figure leaving through a doorway. The others rush in and Hobson sends them in to look, but they say that they can't see anything. Hobson puts it down to a case of nerves and then goes to look at Evan's body. However, it is no longer there. He starts to accuse the travellers of being up to something, but Benoit arrives and tells him that another man has fallen ill. He tells them as he leaves that they had better find his body or he will remove them from the moon base. The doctor goes off to explore the surrounding area, leaving Polly alone with Jamie, who starts to come to again and asks for water. When she goes to get him some, he opens his eyes and cries out as he sees a phantom piper approaching him. The phantom piper is a cyberman. Episode 2 The Cyberman moves away from Jamie and chooses an easier target to abduct in the form of one of the unconscious patients. As the Cyberman leaves, Polly arrives and catches a glimpse of him, causing her to scream. The others rush back into the room, but again there is no evidence of the Cyberman. Hobson accuses her of being hysterical and sends some men to locate the missing bodies, saying that they must be inside as they cannot leave the base without a spacesuit and none of them are missing. The Doctor takes out his diary to start reviewing his notes on the Cyberman. Ben asks how there could still be Cybermen after the destruction of Mondas, But Hobson says that Cybermen are now little more than a bedtime story to scare children. The Doctor however is not so sure and goes back to reviewing his diary whilst Hobson lists all of the ills that have befallen the base in the last two weeks. His tone is very accusatory, which causes Ben to suggest that they leave after his insistence of their innocence is ignored by Hobson. However, the Doctor says that they need to stay and fight the evil that has afflicted the base. He offers to help find the source of the virus, and Hobson agrees but gives him only 24 hours to do so. After that, they all must leave, including Jamie. Hobson shows the doctor to the pathological equipment, and after he leaves, the trio set to work. In the command center, Hobson and Benoit notice an error with the display screen, leading Benoit to suggest that there is a fault with the Gravitron itself. Hobson gets Nils to move the satellite link probe to see if the Gravitron follows it. The test fails, and Hobson orders a system diagnostic. Hobson and Benoit then begin to argue over whether or not to increase the power of the installation reactor, which could be very dangerous, but their discussion is cut short when the Earth Command Station calls in. They inform Hobson that the hurricane is severely affecting the continental United States and that they need to resolve the issue ASAP. Benoit suggests doing a hard reboot of the graviton system, but Hobson and his opposite number on Earth forbid it, as it could have disastrous global consequences. Earth Command again demands that they fix the problem. Hobson then orders the whole command center to be given a full-scale diagnostic. As they set about their jobs, the doctor arrives and begins to take hair and clothing samples from everyone. In the sickbay, Ben leaves to find Hobson so he can find out where they keep the rest of the medical supplies. After he leaves, Polly attends a del- delirious Jamie and the Cyberman reappears, shocking them both into unconsciousness. The Cyberman then takes another of the patients out of the room. The doctor arrives after he leaves and tends to Polly. In the command centre, the diagnostic is not yielding any strange results. One of the technicians reports a strange drop in air pressure in the moon base, a phenomenon that Hobson has made note of several times over the last few days. The technician reports that there has been no activity in the compression chamber and Hobson orders him to keep an eye on it. However, unbeknownst to them all, the air pressure drops are actually occurring in the food storage room where Cyberman emerges from a hole in the exterior wall that is being blocked by food sacks which it then replaces to plug the hole. Back in the command center, the source of the issue with the Gravitron is discovered to be an issue with the alignment antenna for the probe, which is two aerials missing. The timing of the fault occurred not long after the TARDIS landed, leading Hobson to conclude that the travellers must have sabotaged the antenna. He then heads down to the sick bay with Benoit, but first he sends some men to go and take a look at the exact damage done to the antenna. Just then Ben arrives and informs him of what has occurred in the sick bay. In the sick bay the doctor's analysis had turned up nothing. Hobson arrives and indicates that he wants them off the moon base, but the doctor cuts him off by saying that he may have found something. He forces everyone, bar Polly, out of the room and tells Ben to keep them outside. Once they are alone, he confesses to Polly that it was actually a ruse to keep Hobson off their back. He then asks Polly to make some coffee to help keep everyone distracted. Once it is ready, he goes out to deliver the news to Hobson that he has found nothing. Out at the antennae, the two men sent by Hobson are attacked by a pair of Cybermen. They are then stripped of their spacesuits and taken away by the Cybermen. Inside, as everyone's having their coffee, one of the men, who already had his, collapses and they watch as the virus spreads through him. The man is taken into the sick bay, and the doctor suddenly slaps the cup from Hobson's hand as he is about to drink it. The doctor says that the man who fell ill in his coffee had sugar in it and points out that everyone who didn't have sugar in their drink is still fine. The doctor takes the sugar container into the lab and upon examination sees that it is laced with a neurotropic agent which accounts for the black lines in the skin. The doctor confirms that it is the Cybermen who at work but Hobson again asks how they could be doing what they are doing seeing as how every inch of the base has been searched and nothing has been found. Suddenly, the doctor signals for Hobson, Ben and Polly to follow him to Jamie's bed. And once there, he asks in a whisper if Hobson is certain every part of the base was searched. When Hobson confirms this, the doctor asks if the search included the sick bay. Hobson says that there was no need as someone was always in there. They then begin to search the room and see one of the Cybermen hiding underneath the sheet on the bed. The doctor quietly signals for everyone to leave, but the Cyberman gets up and moves towards them brandishing a weapon. Episode 3 The Doctor ushers the others back towards the door, but the Cyberman commands them to stay. One of the technicians tries to attack it from behind, but he is killed by another Cyberman as it enters the opposite door. These Cybermen appear to be more advanced than their predecessors, and seem more robotic as a result. The first Cyberman orders the second one to guard the others whilst it radios back to its ship, where it is instructed to carry out the next part of their plan. The Cyberman tells the Doctor that they are aware of who he is, and then asks to speak to Hobson. Hobson demands to know where they have taken the sick men, and he is told by the Cybermen that they are being altered and threatens Hobson not to do anything foolish. The second Cyberman attempts to take Jamie for the conversion process, but Polly begs him to be left alone due to his head wound. Upon hearing this, the Cybermen decide that he is of no value to them and demand to be taken to the command centre. Hobson reluctantly does so, and the Cybermen warn Ben and Polly to stay in the sick bay or else they will be taken for a conversion. In the Cybermen ship, the infected technicians are being placed in the capsules, after they have passed the control response test. In the command center, Benoit is attempting to reach the repair team sent out to the antenna, but to no avail. Hobson and the Cybermen arrive, and everyone is astounded to see them, having thought that they were extinct, but Hobson warns everyone to stay back. The Cybermen then state their intention to take control of the Gravitron in an attempt to change the climate on Earth. The Doctor says that this would kill everyone on the Earth, and Hobson mocks them for their petty feelings of revenge. The Cybermen state that they have moved past such feelings, and so the concept of revenge is alien to them. Instead, they intend to remove all potential threats to the Cybermen race, starting with the art. They also reveal how they managed to get into the base, accounting for the drops in the air pressure. Suddenly, the infected men in return and are instructed to take up positions at the various workstations. Benoit protests when two of them are sent into the Gravitron Power Corps, stating that the sh- sonic fields generated by the core will drive them insane within a matter of hours. The Cybermen state that this is of no concern, as their purpose could be completed by then. Doctor observes the Cybermen controlling the infected men with a control box and when their attention is elsewhere, he tampers with it, rendering the infected men temporarily immobile. He then wonders why the Cybermen are using the infected men to do their work that they could easily do themselves and wonders if it has something to do with the gravity, but his thoughts are cut short when the men resume their work. Earth Control radios in, curious to know what is going on as a scheduled check-in was never made. Earth Control advises that if there is an issue with the communication equipment, then they should fire a relief flare. Hobson tells the Cybermen that if the flare is not fired soon, the Earth will dispatch a rescue ship. In the sickbay, Jamie struggles out of the bed, insisting that he is better and wants to help. Ben and Polly begin to discuss a way to defeat the Cybermen. Ben reminds her that they are weak against radiation, but the only source of it on the base is the power packs for the Gravitron, which is terminal nuclear in design and therefore too dangerous to handle. Jamie, drawing on his own knowledge pool, suggests using holy water, an idea which Ben unfortunately shoots down. However, it gives Polly an idea as she looks at her nails. They remember that the control panel in the chest of the Cybermen appears to be made up of some sort of plastic. And Polly states that nail varnish is plastic in nature and can be removed by acetone. She wonders if maybe the process could work on the control panels if they had a strong enough solvent to douse them with. Polly does an experiment to see if it works and it is successful. And she explains to Ben that if they can soften the control panels, then they would be easier to destroy. They take every chemical solvent they can find and place them into spray bottles. Jamie insists on going to help fight the Cybermen and gets into a showdown with Ben, who says that they can't worry about him relapsing. Polly gets them to put their egos aside so they can deal with the Cybermen, but Ben insists that she stay behind, as Cybermen is men's work, a statement which does not impress her, and she also insists on going with them. Inside the command center, the Doctor again fiddles with the control box, distracting the Cybermen, just as the trio rush in, firing their spray bottles at the Cybermen. They are incredibly effective, as the Polly Cocktail, as Ben has dubbed it, rapidly eats into the control panels of the Cybermen, killing them. Hobson tells her and the others to get the infected men back to the sick bay, whilst he and the others attempt to restore the Gravitron to a safe level. On the Cybermen ship, the loss of contact is noticed, and the leader issues a command for them to prepare their weapons. Back inside the base, Benoit says that they still need to check on the antenna, and says that he will go alone, as they have no one else to spare. He arrives at the antenna and reports that the men are missing. One of the technicians in the base lookout tower warns him of an armed Cyberman approaching, and Benoit screams as it shoots at him. Fortunately, the Cyberman's weapon cannot work in the vacuum of space, and Benoit flees back to the base with the Cybermen giving chase. Ben puts on a spacesuit and attempts to go out and save him using a solvent Molotov, as the spray bottles also won't work outside. He successfully hits the Cyberman who dies like the others and he rushes back inside the base along with Benoit. Inside the command center, Hobson tells Pi to make up as much of the solvent as she can and orders the perimeter sensors to be used to locate the Cyberman ship. The Doctor asks if there is any way that either the probe or any of its gravity apparatus could be lowered down towards the moon. Before he gets a chance to explain why, Niels reports that he has found the ship. They all gather in the observation deck, and Hobson uses a telescope to look at the ship. He then informs the others that dozens of Cybermen are advancing on the base. Episode 4 Hobson confirms with the Doctor that the base is now completely sealed, including the hole in the storeroom, so the Cybermen will not be able to get in easily. Jamie calls them over to the communication station, as the Cybermen leader radios them to demand access, as any resistance is now useless. Hobson refuses to give in to their demands, and tells Niels to contact Earth, but they discover that the signal is being jammed somehow. Benoit suggests that they could be attacking the antenna relay, and Hobson says he will go out. The Doctor says it is too late, however, as he observes the Cybermen destroying the antenna through the telescope. Hobson seems to be at a loss for what to do, but the Doctor says that a weakness will present itself soon to allow them to defeat the Cybermen. Benoit says that a relief rocket should be sent soon if Earth is worried about their lack of communication, but Neil says that it is more than likely on its way due to all the trouble that has been going on already. Hobson orders him to monitor the flight path for any incoming rocket and inform him of when it is within range. Polly and Hobson seem content to wait in a relative safety, but Ben is sceptical of things going so smoothly, a sentiment echoed by the Doctor who says that they have no way of knowing what the Cybermen are planning, as they too will detect the rocket. This proves to be true when the Cybermen leader informs his troop that the relief rocket is actually 15 minutes away and needs to be dealt with. The Cybermen then use the control box to send a signal into the base, which awakens one of the infected men. He attacks the man on guard duty and sneaks his way into the command center. Everyone is too busy working and enjoying fresh coffee to notice as the infected man makes his way into the graviton Power Corps and knocks out the operator there. Ben and Niels inform everyone that the relief ship can be viewed on the external monitors as it approaches the moon base. Polly wonders what will happen if they come across the Cybermen, but Hobson assures her that the relief ship is armed well enough to deal with any Cybermen and their ship. Jamie then notices that the ship suddenly begins to veer off course, and they all watch in horror as it begins to accelerate towards the sun. Ben says that the sun is millions of miles away, but Ben Benoit says that once the ship is trapped in its gravitational field, there is no escaping it. Hobson wonders what could have happened, and the Doctor says that the only thing that could have deflected the ship is the gravity device. They stare into the Gravitron power core and see the infected man at the controls. The Doctor realizes that the Cybermen are controlling him again, and he tells Jamie and Ben to barricade the other infected into the sickbay and keep them there at all costs. The duo arrive just in time as the infected attempt to make their way out. They use a table to ram them back into the room before sealing the the doors and placing more furniture against them. In the command center, Hobson pleads with the infected man to fight back against the Cybermen's control, but to no avail. Benoit says that they will have to rush him as the longer he is in the power core, the more damage he can do to Earth's ecosystem. Suddenly, the Cybermen leader messages in saying that all further rescue ships will be deflected into the sun and they will also destroy the base if they are not allowed in. Hobson says that they will fight to defend the base from the Cybermen, but then the Cybermen puncture a hole in the observation deck which begins to suck the oxygen out of the command center. Everyone rushes to put on oxygen masks as Benoit and Hobson seal the hole using a coffee tray. As everyone regains their composure, Polly notices how quiet it has become the Doctor realizes that the Gravitron has stopped, as the infected man has now passed out. They rush in to remove him before he regains consciousness, and the Doctor takes off his controlled headgear so that he can speak to the Hobson. Benoit then notices that another Cyberman ship is landing, and the Cyberman leader again demands that they surrender or they will fire on the base. Niels goes to report this to Hobson, and together the four men watch the Cyberman fire a laser cannon at the base. However, the beam is repeatedly deflected, and Hobson realizes that the energy field generated by the Gravitron is acting as a temporary deflector shield. The doctors suggest that if they aim the Gravitron probe as low as they possibly can towards the surface of the moon, then maybe they will be able to use it against the Cybermen. Benoit goes to the power core, but they can't get the probe down far enough. The doctor and Hobson try to remove the probe manually, but it won't work. Hobson then realizes that there is an angular cutoff relay built into the probe so that it wouldn't dip so low as to affect the base itself. He disables it, and Benoit is able to lower the beam enough so that it can be aimed at the moon's surface. The resulting effect causes all the Cybermen and their ships to float off into space. After a brief celebration, Hobson issues instructions to the remaining staff to get the probe back up and running so they can restore Earth's ecosystem. He goes to tank the Doctor and the others, but discovers that they have slipped away. On their way back to the TARDIS, Polly spots a ship in the upper atmosphere and wonders if it is the Cybermen. The Doctor tells her that he has a feeling that it won't be the last time they see them. The TARDIS dematerializes, and once they are in flight, the Doctor says that he will use the ship's time scanner to show the crew how the moon base fares in the future. However, a horrified Polly points to the screen where it shows a giant, gigantic, pincer-like claw. End of the story.
0: Thank you, Paddington.
1: You're welcome, Trisha. Now that is the story over in with. we're going to go over to the trivia spot with Trisha. So tell us what's new. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the air date for this story was the 11th of February, to the fourth of March, nineteen sixty-seven. An interesting thing about this air date is if you consider the fact that the first Cyberman story, "The Tenth Planet," I mean, that really only finished up like in November of nineteen sixty-six, and already mm-hmm. into February, nineteen sixty-seven, we have our second story with the Cybermen.
1: And that's actually a much faster turnaround than the Daleks as well, like who are like the you know the Doctor Who villain and such, you know?
0: Oh yeah, I mean. They hadn't even finished airing Tenth Planet when this story was commissioned. They were so sure the Cybermen were going to be a hit.
1: And I guess, I guess they're right.
0: <laughs> I guess they were right, yeah. For this story, we have the return of Kit Pedler as our writer. We have discussed Kit before. Mm-hmm. He was hired as the scientific advisor for the show, and he went on to contribute the story idea for the war machines, and then he helped create the Cybermen in Tenth Planet. This is Kit's second of three writing credits. We'll see his work again in the Tomb of the Cybermen. Clearly a bit of a theme for Kit.
1: Yeah. I I think I made the comment that he was like the Terry Nation of Cybermen.
0: Yeah. (laughs) According to Annika Wills, Kit was a bit of a feminist and he was a real strong supporter of women in science. And so he loved writing strong moments in his stories for Polly, which I love.
1: Yeah, it's great. It's great to see that.
0: The director for the story is Morris Barry. This is the first of three Doctor Who directing credits for Morris. We'll see his work again in The Tomb of the Cybermen and The Dominators. Apparently Morris is a bit of a no-nonsense director. You know, a bit old-school, tweed, you know, yeah. didn't take any guff. And while he would never embarrass anyone on set, like he wasn't the type to yell across the set at someone for doing something wrong and embarrassing them. He had no issue pulling you aside and having a quiet word. You know... Don't do that again, or whatever. Something apparently he did a fair bit with Patrick Troughton in the story to get him to tone down the clown aspect of the Doctor a little bit.
1: When you hear that kind of directing style, you'd you'd kind of wonder what would he be like with William Hartnell. Like, would they have what would their relationship be like?
0: I think it would have been really good because. I didn't go into it in this particular trivia section. I'll get to it later on when we eventually get to that story. Yeah. But Mars later did some acting as well. And so he really comes across to me as a sort of an actor's director. Yeah. Do you know where he is aware of the actor's needs and requirements, but he wouldn't just blast it yeah. across the set. But apparently he, you know, a bit no nonsense, you know, we have a job to do have a quiet word, you know, a gentleman's chat off the side, don't do that again. <laughs> yeah. Come back in. Uh Mars passed away back in 2000. This story, once again, we have some missing episodes. Only episodes 2 and 4 of this four-part story exist in the BBC archives. Thankfully, though, the BBC has animated episodes 1 and 3, so the story can be enjoyed in its entirety on DVD or I'm pretty sure it's on BritBox or whatever platform you get your classic Doctor Who from.
1: I think the animated ones are on BritBox.
0: Yeah, I think the I think like the official released ones, yeah. ones are, yeah. Um, there was a scene cut from the third episode involving Hobson, Benoit, and a Cyberman which would have revealed that these Cybermen had left Mondas prior to its destruction in the 10th planet, and they had settled on a different planet called Telos. Which, I don't get why you caught that. It explains where they came from.
1: Yeah, and... Like, that's kind of funny, like, that it's, what, like, 90-odd years since the events of the Ten Planet, mm. and they're already, like, boogeymen, like, they're already cre- creatures of myth, which I suppose is kind of strange, you know, like, they're not exactly fucking leprechauns, mm. but um, yeah. no, I, I think that would have, like, been really cool, because, like, judging from the fact that like, the Cybermen, like, bring in a second ship, it's a sizable contingent of them.
0: Yeah, and it's one of these things in Doctor Who that we do kind of see a bit more going forward and particularly, no offense intended, in the current era of Doctor Who, so 2005 onwards, where we have destroyed all of this enemy. Two seasons later, no, we didn't, and no one's going to explain how these enemies are back again, but we didn't destroy them the last time.
1: Emergency temporal shift.
0: Yeah, whereas here Kit at least tries to give reason and Mm. they just didn't bother with it this set for this is quite amazing Mm. so their moon base set was at Ealing studios and apparently that was phenomenal and then the moon base set was in their sort of normal um recording studios and before they started filming patrick troughton went for a bit of a wander through the moon base set to see what it was like and that uh, prop for the Graviton mm-hmm. nearly fell on him. Jesus. I missed him by a couple of inches. And apparently, Mar's going kind to of use that as a way of saying, hey, you know, let's move <laughs> this around for different camera angles or whatever. But it actually it nearly crushed him. Um, so not exactly the safest item to have around.
1: And like, what, what, when you're watching it, you know, the scene where himself and Hobson are trying to, like angle it like, mm. you're kind of wondering like is is it like how much resistance is there, are they actually encountering with this thing i now we know it has the capacity to kill a man yeah that scene doesn't look as kind of you know pretend it's heavy
0: well kill maybe crush i mean anything of a certain weight coming from a height I mean? you yeah. um, know it doesn't necessarily need to be uh realistically heavy
1: Oh, oh, I just had a really dark thought, really, really dark thought. Um, In The Omen, Patrick Troughton's character is killed by a falling church steeple.
0: Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) And what's worse is in The Omen, because I know you'll never watch it. All the characters deaths are they're kind of you get shades of them from a a photographer's camera because um, every every time he takes a photo of Patrick Troughton, he sees like this weird dark spike emanating from his shoulder. Which is how, he, which is where the spike enters in his character. So it's like, oh, that's creepy. That's so so creepy.
0: The design for the Cybermen has been revamped a bit for this story, uh, making them look a bit cleaner, a little bit less hodgepodgey. Mm. So while this made life easier for the actors, the costume still wasn't great. I mean, any costume like that, particularly back in the sixties, is going to be a bit of a a pain to stay in. Yeah. And Fra- Fraser Hines has said that between setups like when they're resetting cameras or any sort of break in filming himself and the other non-costumed actors were constantly like, okay, get, get the helmets off, get the boys, you know, get them free. And people were like, Oh, gonna we'll be a minute. And like, no, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Get the boys free. Let them, you know, let them breathe yeah. properly. Which I think was great. It's nice that, you know, that yeah. our, our main actors are taking care of the guys in the suits.
1: Mm. Cause like the suits look to be a bit more, um, kind of like plethora based. Than the previous ones. So like obviously they would be hotter inside like.
0: Yeah so I imagine like. They're much hotter inside. They don't necessarily have the same sort of like. Pop sock balaclava type look to them. So they look. Personally I think they look better. And we'll discuss this when we get to the villain piece later on. But I do imagine it still wasn't comfortable. And, like I said, you know, Fraser sort of describes it on the DVD that, like, pretty much any time there was a break in filming, it was like, come on, guys, get them off. Like, let the guys let the guys breathe, do you know? So, leaping on the moon, you know, doing little moon jumps or whatever, looks really fun. And the actors were quite looking forward to it. Do you know, they get to do a little bit of wire work, do you know, be mm-hmm. a No, apparently not as fun as it looks. Um, because the way the... You have to be anchored in with the wires. It, like, loops around your crotch. Oh. And apparently several people got a little bit of nappy rash, shall we say. And you obviously don't have that much control, so you might land on your side, and the guys with the pulleys can't really make you land gently. And Annika was was saying in the DVD that you know, she'd been really looking forward to flying. Like, she gets to fly, and it was great. And then they were like, no, it, it really wasn't that fun. <laughs> this episode... And we'll get to this in the character discussion, I am sure. But I want to include here, just in the trivia section, because it's something that comes up a lot. And it was mentioned on the DVD extras. This episode is often cited as being sexist towards Polly. And it's the one that people generally go to, I think even more so than Tenth Planet, in terms of the Polly goes to make the coffee. Hmm. Do you know, and Polly being told to go make the coffee. Um, and her being reduced just to being the tea and coffee lady. Annika Wills has disputed that, saying that that wasn't the intention at all. Like again, we see Polly's intelligence shining out. Kit deliberately put in all of that stuff for her, and she sort of seemed to be quite offended at the idea that people thought that a story written by Kit, who held her in high regard, was sexist towards her. And she that wasn't the intention at all, at all
1: i don't i don't get this like that that at all like and like the, like obviously okay there's the scene where the doctor says i don't know polly put on the co- the you know why don't you go make some coffee Like, it's the doctor saying it's like okay look there's only the two of them in the room and the doctor like not to kind of make him more important like but he's trying to figure out a way how to break the news to the house and that we don't get fucking chucked into space what usually calms a lot of people down is some sort of caffeinated beverage. So I, 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 it's a logical, it's a logical scene. I don't see that as a sexist scene.
0: Neither do I. And I said we'll get to it when we're discussing Polly's character, and I'm sure we'll discuss a little bit about Ben as well because Ben has a moment that doesn't get cited anywhere near as often, by the way. Hmm. <laughs> um, but it's interesting to see that from the actress's perspective, she was like, "No, this was." Kit wrote this story with like all these nice moments for Polly. Mm. Where are you getting the sexist stuff from? Stop inferring things that, that aren't there.
1: I think it's a case of like the the overall specter of the era that it was done in. Kind of yeah. like h- hides the um, hides it a small well, bit, I think.
2: Yeah.
0: So on to our cast. So we're looking at three sort of main members of our cast this week. So first off as Hobson, we have Patrick Barr. So this is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Patrick. I'll actually just say it now. It's the only Doctor Who acting credit for all of them. Getting that out there. Mm-hmm. Patrick was actually friends with several members of the cast. So Annika Wills, he was friends with her. And it was actually her husband, Michael Goff, who recommended him for the role when they were having dinner one day with Kit Pedler. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Fraser played Patrick's son at one point in time. So apparently when they saw each other on set, it was like, hi, dad. Hi, son. <laughs> and Patrick Troughton was actually friends with him. So it was a really sort of friendly atmosphere for them all on set. Mm. Patrick's other acting credits include Golden Girl, The Avengers, The Magical World of Disney, Crown Court, The McKinnons, and Octopussy.
1: And that's what I recognize him from outside of Doctor Who.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I wondered if you would. I wondered yeah. if you would. Patrick passed away back in 1985. Benoit is played by Andre Moran. Like I said, only Doctor Who acting credit for Andre. His other credits include Darling Lily, which is, I'm pretty sure, my favourite Julie Andrews film, hands down. Just putting it out there. Soundy Music and Mary Poppins have their own place because childhood, but Darling Lily, if you haven't seen it, it's amazing. And it's a... Blake Edwards film and he plays your sort of stereotypical Blake Edwards police investigator and the whole way through watching this as was like he's so familiar he is so familiar that's right
1: because when you told me that he was in Darling Lily I was like not trying to go to Wikipedia I was like trying to go who is he in it because all I could think of is Rock Hudson and evil butler looking man or evil evil look evil looking butler man <laughs> as opposed to evil, evil. you know he
0: wasn't Rock Hudson yeah. and he wasn't oh what was his name
1: the guy that plays um, Picard's brother in Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah,
0: he wasn't him either, obviously. Yeah. He played one of the investigators that comes to the house when her house yeah. is on Robert,
1: sorry, Robert is the character's name from the next generation. <laughs> yeah. here, on. <laughs> um,
0: his other credits are The Return of the Pink Panther, Trail of the Pink Panther, Curse of the Pink Panther. I think Big Edward said a bit of a thing for Andre after <laughs> Darling Lily. A Little Princess, the TV miniseries, not the film, and Bergerac. Nils is played by Michael Wolf, and his other credits include Espionage, The Saint, The Baron, Out of the Unknown, Oh What a Lovely War, A Bridge Too Far, and Have We the Saint, Pet.
1: I love A Bridge Too Far. Such a good movie. No, I can't. Again, remember...
0: I'm going out through it. I'm like, I, I guarantee you, Paddy knows that film. I, no, I don't.
1: But, uh... I don't know who he is in it, because uh, like, there's a fuck ton of people in A Bridge Too Far. <laughs> 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 uh, but yeah. Um... I have to say, like I know we'll get into it in the character discussion, but I really enjoyed the guest cast in this week's story.
0: Yeah, so did I. I'll get to it later on, particularly in my overall. Um, But I think our guest cast this week was incredibly strong. Again, Mm. we have another story where we have no other female characters. Yeah. Which is interesting. But I think particularly, particularly Hobson and Benoit are very very interesting characters and they were played very well um nils and like all the others like all the other characters that are in there they were all really strong as well Mm. but hobson and benoit really stood out for me
1: hobson and benoit sound like a tribute actor for robson and jerome (laughs) (laughs) i can imagine their version of like saturday
0: night on the moon base who knows what villains will see
1: or the case of up, up, up on the moon <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, I used to
0: love Robson and
1: Jerome when I was a kid you still do love Robson and Jerome <laughs> I do
2: still
1: love Robson and Jerome that's true uh, <laughs> awesome trivia section trish thank you so much that was really fun and really informative so as always now we're going to go on to the character discussion so we have the doctor we have the companions we have our story-based companions and we have our villains of the piece before we give our overall thoughts so who shall go first
0: why don't you go first Cool. what did you think of the doctor in the story
1: um so because of the, the nature of this story it's like a, it's kind of a horror-themed story. Mm. This plays heavily into my love of Patrick Troughton because the first thing I ever properly saw him in was *The Omen*, mm. and which is a horror movie. Now he's a short role in it, but he's fantastic in it. And for me, he's a he's a real draw you in to the story character. And here, I think he's in his element because it's playing off his ability to draw you into like a scary scenario, so that when something does happen, like. The bit where he says about you know but you searched everywhere yes but did you search in here that's on the dvd um load up page mm. and i was like oh <laughs> because like with the music and with his bringing bring you into it it's like a great moment by him um no he did seem kind of in the background at a lot of moments in this but he was doing kind of funny stuff you know in terms of like fiddling with dials or on the floor people's shoes you know taking like samples from them and all this type of stuff so i i, I enjoyed that uh he mentions having a medical degree from uh, glasgow like in like the 1750s and polly's like 1888 is that, sorry 1888 and i was like uh polly's like is that quite you know equatable to what you're trying to do here uh, again, just fantastic comedic facial performance by Patrick Troughton. Um, I loved his little kind of inner monologue. Although, why is he whispering in his inner monologue? So,
0: why do you whisper in your own inner monologue? Then, Is the first sign of insanity talking to yourself or talking back?
1: No, the first sign of insanity is hairy hands. <laughs> the second sign is looking at it. <laughs> uh, uh,
0: But yeah, why does he whisper in his own hands? Well... He doesn't
1: want anyone else to hear him. <laughs> I love a third voice just goes shh. <laughs> um, I, I think this is a really good. And like, we've had a string of really good performances from Patrick Troughton. Hmm. Uh, and that's the one constant. Now, we've had up and down stories, uh, like, especially like, you know, after coming off of The Underwater Menace last week. And um, like, we had like a really good, amazing introduction performance in Power of the Daleks. He had a lot of fun in Highlanders. And here, while, yes, he's in the background, he's not as dialogue heavy. It's what he's doing. It's He's drawing you into the scene as such. Yeah. Um. He, he's what I would call, I would refer to as like a Steve McQueen actor. I think I mentioned it before. It's like where uh, it's from the movie The Magnificent Seven. Uh, Steve McQueen had this thing where like he, whenever someone else was talking, his character would be doing something. So obviously you're distracted by him. And Yul Brenner famously said that um, if you keep doing that while I'm talking, I'll take off my hat and no one will be able to see you. Because <laughs> <laughs> Yul Brynner's big, bald, shiny head. <laughs> uh, no, I really enjoyed Pat uh, the Doctor in this one. I thought he was like a really, really good thing. And he, he does he does something that, unfortunately, I don't think William Hartnell was able to do as well, which is to actually make you feel genuine fear as to the threat that's going on.
0: Yeah, and like, they got something with... Patrick has a very expressionate face. Yes, he does. That Bill didn't have, or didn't leverage. I don't know, if, I can't say he didn't have it. I haven't seen him in anything else.
1: Um, no, because the stuff that I have seen him in, where he does play a, any sort of a vulnerable character, it's never been in something horror related. It's been in something sort of, a oh, kind of like, so it's vulnerable as opposed to afraid.
0: Yeah, whereas Patrick does have this amazing control of his face is probably Mm. the best way to describe it. And you know, that comes in the happiness and the joy and like he literally flicks it. Whereas with Bill the change between super happy happy and indignant it was a more of a physical change like his the way he held himself changed or whatever. Patrick can do a lot of that with just his face.
1: Yes. Mm.
0: Which is really good. Um for me I think I'll be honest, this is a very solid performance for Patrick, mm-hmm. but there's nothing phenomenal in comparison to the previous stories. There's nothing new here.
1: Oh no, oh, no, the, no, there's no, there's nothing new. There's no, there's no new element other than the you know the whispering side of things,
0: other, other than talking to himself.
2: Yeah, but
0: which let's face it, isn't really that strange for, for the Doctor. But uh, I would agree that it's a very solid performance. Yeah. Um, one thing, well, two things. One thing was that, you know, we get to see him have his full-blown science mm-hmm. episode. So in last week's episode, there was a little bit of sciencing. Yeah. But it was more sort of hodgepodgey and, you know, behind the back and, yeah. you know, whatever. Whereas here we actually get to see him do a proper breakdown scientific analysis, you know, similar to what we saw in the sensorites. Right?
2: Yeah.
1: Um, montage
0: <laughs> with Bill. The only thing is that he he had no checklist. Like his experiments are worthless because the, there there was no checklist.
1: No, there's no. There
0: checklist. was no big giant like tick the box. <laughs> Boots clear. There, there was none of that. Um, an important question though. Yes. So this was a very scary experience. Mm-hmm. The virus, you know, the the effect it had on people. you know, this raging. Uh, neurological virus that caused you to be able to see their neural pathways I wonder if the doctor will remember at any point in the future if someone has this really weird like almost pulsating thing going along their neurological pathways I wonder if he'll remember that's the Cyberman I
1: wonder who knows Mm. Like he does have a diary now
0: he do, he does have diary that he refers to quite a bit.
1: Yep. Although I don't see why he would be why he would know if anything was in the fucking diary about the Cybermen, seeing as how straight away after he encountered them, he transformed into Patrick Troughton.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, we have sort of been doing the continuation of one story leads into the next leads into hmm. the next. But you know, maybe he's had a few minutes to jot down his memories or maybe you know when the doctor passed out Mm. i.e. when Bill passed out um, in 10th Planet maybe he when when he woke up maybe he jotted down a a few bits
1: well thanks to Twice Upon a Time we know that there is a small bit of time between leaving the moon base or sorry not the moon uh, the Antarctic base and when he gets to the TARDIS
0: also I now have a sinking suspicion new headcanon it's actually a psychic 500 year journal
1: Yes. Yeah, that would actually kinda of make sense. Yeah. Cool. So the companions of the piece.
0: Yeah. Um, question for you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Since when is Ben a scientist?
1: I think he's trying to, you know, set himself apart. It was like, look, I learned things.
0: <laughs> yeah, I did wonder, right, because he goes on about he knows a lot about uh pressurized containers in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. He's the one who says that it's actually acetone in nail varnish remover because Polly doesn't remember what it's called. And he has. A, he's a few sort of science bits, I wonder whether he has served or whether he wants to serve on submarines. Possibly. And a lot of this stuff w- would be from him, like, reading up on serving on submarines and stuff.
1: Hmm.
0: Like airlocks and, and that type of thing.
1: Because yeah. I love, like... <laughs> Because, like, when you're uh, watching it in the DVD, the anime thing, when he's explaining how to use a spray bottle, and I'm like, hang on a sec, no, spray bottles were invented like in the early 60s. Like, this isn't some new fucking fangled technology.
0: He was explaining it to Jamie.
1: See, that's what this—that's what the thing doesn't show because it only shows some like using the thing. It doesn't actually show who's ex- who's explaining it yeah, to. I,
0: mean, I think he's be explaining how spray bottles work to Jamie. I think that was the perfect.
1: I I would fucking hope so because if he's just there explaining it to Polly, she's like, "You are such an asshole." <laughs>
0: um, oh, I suppose we should kind of speak about Ben being a bit of a a bit of an asshole in the oh,
1: story. I, I think that like he is such a prick in this story.
0: I think there is a moment where he is a prick. I wouldn't say goes throughout the entire story, though. I think that's
1: no, but like it's a bit. like like he is a like he is a prick in because of the way that now okay he has his normal Ben moments, like you know he's his normal capable self, and you know the going forward to looking after like you no know, trying like trying to go out to help Benoit, like putting himself at risk with the, the solvent Molotov. Um but it's very... Do you, know, you know what it is, right? It has been so long since we've seen a moment of Stephen mm. in the story that when it's there, it's like it's just so glaringly there.
0: Yeah, I mean, there was a bit of a sort of like an alpha male you know, positioning of himself. And then there's the whole, this is man's work, which again, I don't know if it's because of the way the episode is shown or whatever, but... I thought so. You described that this is man's work is cybermen, is man's work.
2: Hmm.
0: I thought he meant that going out, avoiding the cybermen and collecting more resources was men's work.
1: No, I because he I thought that...
0: they were. I thought they were going to get more bottles.
1: No, they because they had the, the the bottles that they because at that stage there's only like three cybermen on the base, so they decide to use the bottles that they have against them. I I
0: didn't realise that they had all three so I took it that they were going to get more
1: yeah no it's fighting Cybermen is men's work
0: okay so I really like Ben Hmm. so I'm going to put on my devil's advocate hat for a second right right. Jamie was recovering from a fever and a blow to the head should he have been leaving the sickbay at all
1: no this is the thing right where I I'm kind of also like on the same page as you in the sense of like that okay Jamie is like Jamie is banged up but as we've been kind of seeing over the last episode or so Jamie is slowly on the path to recovery and but at the same time yes Ben is getting into a small bit of an ego thing which I, I think it's, it's a bit of an egotism it's like you know like I'll do this I'll be the one to carry you know carry the fight I don't. I think that if Jamie, if Jamie had been a hundred percent, Ben wouldn't have said that line.
0: Yeah. So it's the thing of like, is it out of character for Ben? Particularly, I mean, last week we were talking about how those two are like, two mm-hmm. sides of the same coin. They're on the same page the whole time. Um, is it out of character for Ben? Yes. But is it an understandable reaction? Also, maybe yes. I mean. Jamie was going on about some Piper coming, but Jamie convinced them all that Jamie was convinced he was going to die. Mm. So, maybe not the most reliable person to have coming with you. Um, The other side, then, is Polly. The only thing I can think to defend the thing with Polly, right? And this is me reaching a bit, because it can't just be how defensive he is of Polly, because we've seen that before, and it's not been an issue. He's respected her desire to help him, whatever. The only thing I can think of is when did we last see the Cybermen? Tenth Planet. Yeah. What happened in Tenth Planet?
1: Ben killed the Cybermen.
0: Ben has killed the Cybermen. And the only thing I can think of is that knowing what it took to take them out before, Ben just doesn't want her anywhere near it in case something happens. Also, these Cybermen, not only do they have guns, they can, like, electrocute
1: you with their weird hands. Mm. But, right, so this is the thing now, right, is that the, okay, the, the idea of him trying to protect Polly, look, that's just who Ben is.
2: Mm.
1: But I, the way, like, okay, I would think it's more in line with Ben to kind of say, like, you know, have his little, you know, fucking bit of pissing contest with Jamie. And Polly says, come on, we'll go. And Ben would kind of say, no, you stay here and look after the sick. You stay here and keep an eye on things. He would tell her to do something else. where yeah. That would be more in line with Ben. But coming out and kind of saying, oh, this is man's work. And it's like, dude, come on. You've seen the stuff that she can do.
0: Yeah. There is a third option. Okay. Which is, Annika said that Kit was a bit of a feminist. Mm-hmm. And maybe it was Kit using... You know, same way we've spoken about the way they've redone the first Doctor in mm-hmm. future stories. Maybe it was Kit writing Ben out of character to prove a point about Polly. Because, bear in mind, like, Ben was calling it the Polly cocktail. Ben was loving that she was coming yeah. up with this shit. Like, do you know what I mean? Again, super supportive, the same way we've always seen him. So I do wonder if this was meant to be hey, viewers, mm. <laughs> no one puts Polly in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> do you know?
1: If that's the case, then, then I think that's a really bad call by Kit Peddler.
0: I would agree. And the only the only reason why I think that that might be it is, A, comments made by Annika that Kit was a bit of a feminist, but also, again, this story was commissioned and 10th Planet hadn't even finished airing. So maybe Kit just didn't know Ben's personality very well.
1: Possibly. Possibly. Um... And I suppose that brings into the nature of the way that the, the classic series was done in the sense that you had multiple different directors on... You could have multiple directors on the same story. You could have multiple writers on the same story. So, therefore, unless everyone's kind of in a writer's room, there's going to be, yeah, different aspects. I just... All three of those arguments make for a very interesting conversation, I think. No. If it's, like, him just being an asshole, it's like, what the, dude, what the fuck are you doing? Um if it's a case of Kit Peddler trying to get across how awesome Polly is, it's a really bad call by you to try and make that. And if it, like, I don't know, I think we could feel, I feel like we could talk like another hour based on this whole thing alone. So, I might recant my thing that he's an absolute prick. I will say that he is very prickish at certain yeah. parts of the story. He do, He
0: does have a moment of, dude, what the fuck? Yeah. Um, but you know he's
1: bad (laughs) yeah and he'd been no, he'd been going strong up until then and then afterwards see with me the thing is like if you do something like that it takes an awful long time for the kind of the goodwill to build back up again so all this other good stuff that he does in the story it's like yeah but you still were you still did this (laughs) you know how do you
0: hold a grudge people (laughs) <laughs> this is the point he is trying to make.
1: if 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 you mess with the things that I like, it will take an awful lot of the <laughs> like if the, the things that I like and the people that I like. <laughs> so we've talked a bit about her. How about we move on to Polly next?
0: Yeah, so for me, this is back to the Polly that we know and love mm-hmm. compared to last week.
1: Yes, yes, yes. where
0: she was an absolute walking disaster of characterization. Is she scared and screamy? Mm-hmm. Yes. Is she willing to do what needs to be done and able to think her way out of a problem? Also yes. Does she use her tea and coffee making skills to help put people at ease? Yes. This is my thing with Polly and coffee. Mm-hmm. Right? Or tea. Whichever. Right? Polly and hot beverages of choice. Mm-hmm. Polly uses hot beverages as a way of connecting with people. Yeah. We saw in Tenth Planet where it was, you know, make the coffee, get to know the guys in the Antarctic base, try and get them to change their mind, ingratiate herself with them. Mm. Here, the doctor has nothing like, absolutely nothing. So Polly makes the coffee hmm. to sort of calm everyone down, keep everyone outside the room while the doctor comes up with something. I
1: think I I think I think realise what the difference is, right? Or why, why this is so much more viewed as a, in a sexist light than Ten Planet. In Ten Planet, Cut, like, Polly's by herself and Cutler says, oh, well, what the hell can you do? And she's like, oh, well, I can make the tea and I can make the coffee. And it's a sort of a, like, you know, I'm just a simple helpless female. Whereas here, she's being told by the doctor, why don't you make some coffee? So I think that therein lies the difference of the argument, but at the same time, given the context of the story, it's still not sexist.
0: No, I, I think I think that the reason why he asked her to do that mm. is the very same reason that she did it in Tent Planet. Yeah. Also, she makes coffee later. She does. When things have sort of calmed down a little bit, sort of before the next ramp up to the next... Event. Yeah. Polly is a people person. How do people relax and connect? Over a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make her, you know, the woman of the group, although she is the only woman in the group. It's, again, it's her using her people skills. And I, I, up until now, I have never seen it any other way.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I, I agree. Like, this is this is going back to the. I kind of say it as, like, the tale of two pollies in the sense of you have the, the screamy reaction, but then once the coast is clear, it's like, right, what's the scenario? Cool, right, let's do this, bitches. And, it's, and like, her her ingenuity, again, is on display. And like we're not with the whole thing of, like, taking a kind of a cue from Jamie's, which I'll say there in a minute, taking a cue from Jamie's superstition, she's like, wait a minute. Starts thinking, and it's like, yo, the nail varnish, acetone... And then kind of like just putting two and two together. And that's all, that's Polly's baby. And it's rightly called the Polly Cocktail. Um, so I, I think that this is, like, when we talked about last week, we said that Polly had her usual flashes of ingenuity, but they're completely overshadowed by the really shitty way that she was handled in the overall mm-hmm. story. Here, we're kind of back to Polly of... Um, the smugglers and Polly of the highlanders which is like moments of fright seeing the coast is clear or seeing like the lay of the land and then you're know, adapting and overcoming and she's a complete fucking boss in this is in the sense that she grabs a spray gun and she dives in with the two lads and she's spraying hell for leather and like there's no there's no fear in her now some of it might be uh egged on by ben's comment but I think she would have done that anyway. I just think that maybe, like, now she might have given uh, a Cyberman a bit of a kick into the groin, you know.
0: <laughs> there is, for me, um, two downsides with Polly in this story.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: One of them I will discuss a bit more in the overall, but I wanted to address her as well. I am surprised that Polly didn't do more to prove the Cybermen were there. She sees something, she thinks it's a Cyberman, she screams, people come running. Mm -hmm. The base personnel don't believe her, so nothing is done. She sees the Cyberman again, this time she's sure it's a Cyberman, and still, nothing gets done. And I'm surprised that Polly didn't push that further. Knowing what she knows from Tenth Planet, I'm surprised she didn't push that further further to prove her point. I was sort of expecting a sort of, you know, don't you fob this off. There is a Cyberman on base, and we need to find it. And I'm mm. surprised she didn't do that. The second thing, which is the thing I'll get to in my overall, is Polly goes through a moment of the dumb. There's an entire sequence, which I'm going to call the sequence of the dumb. All right. Which is, did you search in this room? this room that has six beds and oh my god there was a Cyberman lying on a bed with a blanket over him. Polly, who has been nursing all of the people in this room didn't fucking notice a body appear out of fuck off nowhere that is huge is wearing different clothing and oh yeah has a Cyberman head.
1: Well, okay. No, so this is... I'll... I'll counter this a small bit and again like I could I'll probably be in the wrong or not I won't probably be in the wrong but
2: <laughs> you shut might up. be in the
1: wrong I might be in the wrong, okay? So uh my initial thing was like oh but one of the bodies was removed, but then in the case of no, there's still down one body, so if, if there's a replacement body in there, that's fucking noticeable. What I will say, okay, is that tensions are very high in the base because of because of the nature of the base. Hobson is at this point in time, he's like He's not quite the villain by uh, circumstance, but he's none too happy with them. And he's none too happy with her, you know, perceivably crying wolf. I did uh, the air quotes there. <laughs> I just realized that no one can see this. But, you know, by the whole thing of like her like, potentially crying wolf. So tensions are kind of high. And then there's the distraction of, you know, like trying to assist the doctor in his... Uh, and her focus as well is on Jamie. So... How many times... Now, you might not be the best person to ask about this because I've seen you fucking dive out of your chair when you notice a DVD out of place. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. One of our hostmates... It is, it once, is true. Yeah, one of our housemates moved two DVDs around in Trisha's system and she had this look at her Facebook like 30 seconds of like something that's not quite right in the force and she just fucking dived for, for the bookcase. It's like that episode of the, Superman, the Teenage Witch where... Is, which one's... Which one's... Zelda. Zelda knew
0: something was wrong someone switched the salt and pepper shakers i'm a bit like that <laughs> yeah.
1: so um but like how many times can you know how many, how many times have you known people to walk into a room and not notice something has changed for you know minutes or hours potentially on end
0: well that's the thing but polly never left the room polly spent all of her time in that room the cyberman climbed on the bed when polly was passed out after it electrocuted her so polly oh. woke up on the floor and never left the room. That's true. And when they were doing samples from everyone. Surely she was sampling everyone. In the room.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay yeah. No. I'll, I'll, I'll take that point.
0: The, the, this, the, that scene. Mm-hmm. For me. Having the Cyberman just be pretending. To be another patient. With a sheet over his face. Mm-hmm. It just made no sense. And even if she was helping the doctor. We saw that Polly was kind of acting as a nurse hmm. in general one of the patients in the six beds that this room has has a sheet over his face and he's not the one that died
1: okay yeah no i'll i'll actually see that point yeah i'll concede that point i got a perception filter i don't know <laughs> <laughs> no i think maybe okay i think i'd say it was a a writing point to get across the suspense of and plus give Patrick Trout in a showcase for his spooky acting um,
0: I think it would have worked fine if yeah. there had been a
1: cupboard in that room <laughs> yeah
2: boo if
1: he was
0: in a cupboard it would have mm. been fine <laughs> she had no reason to look at the cupboard no one had any reason to search the room and there was no reason to look in the cupboard that mm. would have been fine but him just lying there I'm like no sorry <laughs> okay <laughs>
1: so Jamie uh don't let the skirt fuck and the bump on the head f- uh, fool you Ben. I will fuck you up <laughs> <laughs> um i I love this kind of recurring motif with Jamie is that no matter what he sees, no matter what he'll experience, he still has his Highland superstitions about him, and like the whole thing of the phantom piper i th- I think that's I think that's kind of cool i I like that um. The whole thing with the Holy Water, I like it's ingenious because it does spark the overall, you know, weapon against them. It's like yeah, he just takes everything in the stride, but he still applies like a Highland logic to it.
0: Yeah, so for me to be honest, Jamie didn't really do a whole lot in this story. Um mm. but his Highland logic and yes. his superstition, so Holy Water and the Piper are the things that directly lead Polly. Yeah to her conclusions he says he sees the piper Mm. and everyone's like oh it's just a hallucination and she's like no he seems to really think he's seen something which makes her more open to the idea of there is someone coming in here who shouldn't be Mm. and then of course the holy water like you said which i think is great i think other than contributing that when he was semi-conscious and standing up to Ben, what did Jamie do that was just Jamie, other than take a bigger leap than he should have, yeah. and somehow manage to hurt his head while wearing a protective helmet?
1: And get a fever from it.
0: And get a fever from it.
1: Like... I don't think that a character necessarily needs to do a whole lot in order to have a good performance. And like we've, we've we've had it before, like in Times Wish, with even our beloved Barbara and Ian, where they didn't really contribute a whole lot, but they were still, you know, strong characters in the story. Um, but I think the bits that he did do and the bits that he was involved in, I think it's laying some really, really good groundwork to make Jamie a very interesting character. Yeah. An
0: interesting thing I didn't include in the trivia Mm because I forgot until just now that DVD right DVDs guys great sources of information special features are fantastic Mm -hmm. apparently Kit Peddler did not know what to do with an 18th century Highlander in his story (laughs) which is why Jamie was knocked out for two episodes Ah. he literally did not. he was like what the fuck am I meant to do with him (laughs) and it was almost like he didn't want him in his story (laughs) he didn't know what to do so he's like fuck it he's unconscious <laughs> <laughs> which it, it's a bit sloppy um, in the way that's handled but to your point we have said it before we we said it a lot with Susan and we said it with Ian and Barbara at times you don't need to be the, the lead companion in the story mm-hmm. to have a strong story Jamie has been delivering week after week after week And this is another one of those. I just think it's kind of sad he didn't get to do a whole lot more. I would love to see, like, obviously, the base is at reduced crew capacity because everyone's sick. And you can see that at one point, they're training up Ben on how to do some of the things. Yeah. I would have quite liked to see them try to train up Jamie as well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I just mean look, look at that screen. When that dot starts coming closer to here, you let us know. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Also, like, yeah, like, you know, knocking him out. Unfortunately, there's no Thunderbird 5 that they can fuck him after for like two episodes. <laughs> Virgil, ooh, more guests, yay! <laughs> uh, so how about we move on to our story-based companions?
0: Sure. So we have Hobson and Benoit and Nils.
1: No, okay, I think we should just get Nils all over and out the way of it. And the reason I included Nils is because he is so happy-go-lucky in this story. I'm delighted that he survives.
0: Okay, so this is another one of those situations. And we've had a couple of them where yeah, Paddy decides what story-based companions we discuss. Because Paddy watches these before I do, because obviously he has to write the whole summer, thing. I watch them usually the day or maybe two days before we record, so it's fresh in my mind. So I take the names of the characters to pay particular attention to from Paddy. And when I got to writing my notes about Nels, I'm like, I literally wrote down, not quite sure why you picked him to discuss when it came to extra characters, but he seemed nice.
1: Yeah. I think what it is, is that like, he has like a counterpart character in the 10th planet. And it's, I think it's Danner. He's one of, he's, he's Barclay's colleague. He, he's oh, the like, guy oh, who
0: tries to side with them later on.
1: Yeah, him. Yeah. Now he's in the that story kind of substantially, and I just refer to him as the technician. But I didn't include him as a a, a story based companion or whatever because at the time I didn't think he warranted it enough. No, Nils here has like a, I suppose a comparative amount of screen time and input, but I think it's just the fact of, every, everyone everyone that's still standing at the start of this with the exception with the exception of Ralph the Cook stays standing at the end and that's not something that you see a whole lot of in Doctor Who
0: that's true and it kind
1: that's of very, and it kind of reminded me of no. also we don't know if the neurotropic agent is fatal with exception the, the instance of Doctor Evans who collapsed uh, presumably due to strain and whatever so we have no idea if, if those guys can recover from it but it, it does really have hallmarks of like the ninth Doctor thing, you know, just like just this once, everyone lives. And I, I like those stories where the car- the, the characters that you expect to die don't, and it's great.
0: You've done great work to justify your inclusion of what is essentially a random <laughs> fucking character.
1: <laughs> he's just so happy and smiley. He I can imagine he'd be like me.
0: <laughs> that is exactly what I was going to say. Is the reason why you included him because he's the you. Of that crew,
1: <laughs> yes. Come on, lads, wrong, wrong, going to heaven, yay! Um, I, okay,
0: completely. Before we get on to Hobson and Benoit, mm-hmm. I, I have something. I'm Did it bother you as much as it bothered me that in episode four,
2: mm-hmm.
0: when the um, Cybermen reactivates, yeah, one of the one of the humans, and he goes into the reactor room or whatever. Mm-hmm. Does it bother you as much as it bothered me that Hobson and Benoit as well kept referring to him as Evans when his name was clearly Beckett because it says it on his jumper?
1: Yeah, it's and Evans is dead. <laughs> All, like, oh, yeah. So like every everyone in the base, they have a vest that has their name, the flag of their nationality, and a number. It's it's like their the, the the number kind of reminded me of the monoids a small bit. <laughs>
0: I I mentioned this in my overall. I'll say it now. For me, it's the Proto Stargate Atlantis uniform. So on Stargate Atlantis, they all had the country patch. Yes. Just like that.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, Cool.
0: Yeah. So they keep calling Evans. Evans is in the room. Evans is doing this stuff. It wasn't Evans. It was Beckett. (laughs) And the only reason I know it was Beckett because I saw Beckett. I thought Stargate Atlantis. I thought Carson Beckett. It's like, I'm calling him Evans. That's not his name. It's like
1: even his first name, his first name begins with an S. <laughs> uh, so, Tangent, uh, sorry. No, no, it's it's grand. It's like, <laughs> what was it? This is, I think, actually kind of shaping up to be one of our quicker episodes. So of course we need these tangents to be all pad out the running time. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So let's let's circle back around away from yeah. my tangent. So cool. uh, let's do Benoit next. Cool. We'll go to second command. What do you think?
1: Um, <laughs> I I had this thing here in my notes, which is like, don't let the neckerchief fool you. Look, I've re I'm reusing the joke. Fuck it, <laughs> leave it. Um, yeah, Benoit for the entire thing, he just wears like a very fancy neckerchief, and I'm like, like is he like the fucking moon based version of Fred from Scooby Doo? <laughs> um, I I re- he's French. Yes, I have to be stylish. Uh, I really liked Benoit on this um, he's a strong second in command on the base uh, kind of reminiscent of Barclay um, I love his little outbursts in French you know like whenever like, Ben pisses him off or whoever pisses him off and it's like I'm not going to I'm not going to do a French accent oh. uh, no because like, we actually have a lot of listeners in France and it's thank you very much for all your support so I'm not going to fucking piss you off <laughs> um, Scottish people they're fine French yeah, a- don't abs- piss them off <laughs> absolutely uh, uh, but, um, or I could kind of, you know, have a go at uh, Paul for his Irish accent and just trying to put on a Kiwi accent, <laughs> but I'm not going to. Oh. Uh, <laughs> um, what was I was going to say that, no, wait, back, back to Benoit. I really, really liked it. And f- like because I'm a wrestling head, every time I heard Benoit, I just thought of Chris Benoit. And I'm like, no, completely different person. <laughs> Separate him, absolutely. Um. I, his relationship with Hobson in this reminded me of the First and Second Elders from the Censorites. I can see that. Yeah, okay. and like, look, he's very capable. He's not one of those guys that's afraid to, to do it. He's one of those leaders, like kind of like Hobson, is that I wouldn't expect the people under me to do something that I wouldn't do myself.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I think we've sort of used the Censorites First and Second Elders as our, our, sort of our baseline for good leadership. Good? They're in, they're in yeah. nice... Yeah. leadership duo
1: yeah exactly good kind of like aligned leadership as opposed to say like you know where you had hensel and quinn in power of the daleks and we're going to have more people going forward And look, like we've talked about the Rights of lens like the Right was a really good story so benoit i think is a great character in this and again i'm happy that he survived how about yeah. you yeah i
0: think benoit he's a solid second in command character yeah you know mm-hmm. someone who and it's It's one of the things I like about the story is he is second in command. His Hmm. job is to be second in command. There's no backstabbery or interpersonal drama or anything else. Do you know who he actually reminds me of? Who? William T. Riker. In a way where he makes sure that Hobson takes care of himself. Yes. His job as second in command is to make sure Hobson's job Hmm. is as smooth as possible. Yeah and that hobson rests but he's also the first person to jump in to help where he can even if he is not necessarily the best person to do the help because mm. of his position as second in command and you can sort of imagine like riker wanted to do something and troy pulling him back saying no your place is here yeah your job is this Hobson kind of has to do that to Benoit at one point where he's like, I can go in the room. He's like, no, I need you here. You can do that. I know you can do that. And I know you don't want to have that guy working for 10 hours. Yeah. But you're my second in command and I need you here. And for me, that came across as very Riker-esque.
1: And it's, it's also, he is the only character that Hobson addresses by his first name like so everyone else is like Nils or Evans or Beckett or whereas like he refers to Benoit as Roger so like, his first name is Roger Benoit and I actually I, I like that yeah I, I, I don't know why I, I just think it was like it's a, kind of in the sense of like you know in Star Trek you know Picard will always refer to Riker on when they're on the bridge as number one but in their private quarters he refers to him as Will
0: yeah
1: yeah so yeah no that's a really good comparison actually Uh, So how about we go on to our (laughs) not-so-follically-challenged leader in this one?
0: (laughs) Poor Jean-Luc. For me, I think Hobson is a good leader. Hmm. Um, You know, in terms of Cybermen stories, there's a good comparison with Tenth Planet, where we did not like the leader in that at all. Nope. But here, Hobson is not a military commander who gets all bent out of shape if he does not understand something. He is a leader of scientists who follows the evidence presented to him. So, you know, you said that you didn't want to reclass him as a villain of circumstance, but eventually he gets kind of sick of the doctor's bullshit because, Mm -hmm. and he calls it out. He was like, when did the power drop start? When did these people arrive? When did the first person get sick? Okay, all of these things happened within... They're saying, like, the 11th cycle. I, mean, I guess that's going to be, like, 11 hours. Right. Yeah. They're meant to be happening within a certain number of hours of each other. These people didn't come on a ship that they saw. They didn't see them coming from Earth. They don't know where they come from. And as soon as they arrive, more people start dropping down sick. So, it's... His logic makes sense. Yeah. But what I love is that he gave the Doctor the time and the opportunity to, pre- to present counter evidence. You know, you're saying this isn't you. Fine, prove it to me. So go find me something I can use. And only when the shit is hitting the fan and he's like, I can't wait any longer. I have to work with the evidence that I have. And that evidence says, you caused this. Does he go down that route?
1: Like, Hobson at the, at the start, right? At, at the very start. Like, because look, it's. This is essentially the 10th planet in space, <laughs> yep. and a lot of very similar character tropes could be expected like for a rehash of a story. And you expect him to be like Cutler because at the start he's like, "Well, who the hell are you?" But almost, I'd say like two minutes later, we get the thing. It was like, no, like I didn't like f- straight away. Like after about two minutes, I removed him from the concept of cl- villain by uh, circumstance because. He's incredibly well liked by his subordinates. He's incredibly respectful towards them. He's a very capable person, and as you said, he gives the doctor and the group enough rope to hang themselves with. What by it's like it's a win-win scenario. If they come up with a cure, all my friends and subordinates are saved. If they can't come up with a cure, I get to fucking hoof them back out into space. And that was one thing I did like was that he didn't think to imprison them, or he didn't. Think, it was essentially of get out of my base and go back to where you came from.
0: Yeah. The other thing as well that I liked towards the end, and we sort of got hints of it early on when we have Benoit telling him, look, you've been up for hours. Mm -hmm. Go get some sleep. Is He is not someone who directs from the back. He leads from the front.
1: Oh, absolutely. He's there front and centre in every scene in the command centre.
0: And getting stuck in and doing jobs himself. You know, he could have easily had one of his guys pulling down the graviton and doing no he's right there doing himself when the glass breaks and the air is being sucked out yeah it's him and Benoit your captain and your second command going to try and plug the hole he takes off his jacket he tries to plug it up he is a leader here not just a commander
1: and like as well, like, you know, when he orders the, the full system, um, you know, the full base system diagnostic, he could have very easily gone into his office and had the reports delivered to him. But no, he works around the various, he goes around the various workstations, liaising with everyone. Like he is, like, he's not an administrative person. He's a scientist in an administrative position on a science yeah. base, which is great. Uh, kind of like um, Weir in that regard, you know, in the sense of she actually is a scientist and she's been put in charge of the Atlantis oper- operation.
0: I'd probably put him more with Carter when Carter was in charge of Atlantis.
1: I haven't gotten that far. So Oh
0: well yeah. where's a politician? Like she's a political
1: oh, science yeah, really, major yeah. rather
0: than a science science person. Oh yeah, that's true.
1: Um fuck it. If you've put Crusher in charge, there we go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um all the fandoms together. Yes. Hobson now I'm gonna make a comparison I'm going to, like, you can call me kinda of crazy, right? But Hobson I think is like a prototype version of the brig.
0: I can see that. Yeah. I can see it. The Brig is more military well, in yeah. terms of his, his patience. His lore. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like a mile. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I can see that. I can see that.
1: Like Hobson, again, he falls into the, the category of guys like, you know, as we said before, you, and there was a few others that we mentioned, that I would like to come back and revisit that character at some point in the future, you know? Yep so yeah like I, 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 that's why I'm saying I love the supporting cast in this one because they were just really really good
0: they were and I said we've discussed Hobson and Benoit in detail we discussed Nils a little bit but the, the other supporting characters they were equally as good yeah do you know like, the reason why I, I made the joke about Nils is because mm. Hobson and Benoit are obviously the lead supporting mm. characters and then the others I, I would put all of the others at the same level
2: yeah
0: but they were all very strong in terms of Cast. Hmm. This is an incredibly strong story
2: in terms oh, of yeah.
1: cast. Oh, like the the acting, I think is phenomenal in this, hmm. and I, I think that's one thing that like you know we don't really get a chance to say on a whole lot of stories is the the acting across the board is fantastic.
0: Yeah, because I mean sometimes you sort of take or leave a performance or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I think on this one, and we're going to get on to our villains now, and I would include hmm. them in this. Yeah. The performances across the board
1: were hmm. great so yeah the villains uh are the cybermen <gasps> shocker <laughs> um i i like these this new streamlined design of the cybermen except for the hands like this the tree clawed hand like yes yeah, so like their their hands they're not five digits they're like two big claws they're like the penguin and yeah. it just it doesn't seem like i have it in my head right that this group of Cybermen they split from according to the the lore is that they split from Mondas and they went over to Telos and it's nearly 100 years since the events of the 10th planet and as we know the whole ethos of the Cybermen is to upgrade themselves to achieve sustainable perfection
2: Mm.
1: everything else about them seems to have reached that goal except for these fucking hands which don't appear to be (laughs) actual you know useful whatsoever
0: yeah I mean To put in some context right so i love the new costume design Mm -hmm. and the updated voice patterns
1: yeah it did make it a hard small bit harder for me to understand them but it's in keeping with their thing because they're now more robotic
0: yeah so gone are the bum bag flashlight ray gun things that they had Mm -hmm. gone are the stocking caps with just opening your mouth and going wow i yeah. just keep your mouth open while this sing song. and gone is the fucking sing song voice which fucking yeah. did my not in 10th Planet now they actually look intimidating yeah. again the only negative for me is the same in Tent Planet they had human hands yeah. they weren't even wearing gloves because they couldn't they couldn't get ones that worked quite well so they just had human hands and we discussed that one of the benefits of having be human hands is that it reiterates the fact that they were human or humanoid yeah. at one point and it sort of led us to this whole conversation of, if you upgrade the body, to the point where you're losing emotions, and the side of the story, they they refer to the fact that they don't have feelings. Yeah. Because, um, Hobson says you're doing all this for revenge, and they're like, "What's revenge?"
1: I I thought that was I thought that's fantastic. That's yeah. a really, like, their whole motive for this thing isn't revenge. It's proactive self-preservation. Yeah. And I was just like, we've moved past such concepts of revenge. And I'm like, what started off in 10th uh, Planet has now kind of achieved its aim here. Yeah. But the
0: thing with 10th Planet is that you and I had this conversation of when you upgrade the body and you're replacing and replacing and replacing, how much of the soul survives? Yeah. And I think when you lose the human hands... Mm -hmm. I mean, they're now described as robots. Yeah. And I I don't know about you, but I wasn't 100% certain... um, The people who they infected with the virus... And who they controlled with the little control probes... Was the intention to eventually upgrade them?
1: I've been wondering that myself, because all you hear is like they've been put forward for the pro- the conversion process but is that conversion into cyber- like we we we're showing that it's not at the immediate time it's not a conversion into cybermen because they have an aim to to take they need to do to take over the moon base before they can do anything else mm. but like is this that this is like the beginning phases for a cyberman conversion we we don't know
0: yeah and that's that's the that's the probably like the one in terms of The character of the Cybermen, that's where the one negative I had, was that I wanted it to be three Cybermen that come out of the ship. Mm -hmm. The one Cyber Leader that was left behind and the two guys that got attacked outside. Yeah. That should be three. Because then that would confirm that, yeah, their plan was to upgrade viable humans because their spacesuits were empty. But then there's loads of Cybermen because they're in lots of ships. Yeah. And you don't know if any of them are those two guys who were outside. And they don't have the human hands anymore. So it's a, it's, for me it took away from that soul-searching conversation.
1: Are they like effectively just like the Robo-Men from Daleks yeah. Invasion of Earth? Um, like, as like you and I know, the Cybermen are going to be a recurring villain as time goes on. And I'm curious to, to, to see, you know, I'm curious to see how much of um, this concept of constantly upgrading, how how like are they con- still considered to be men? Are they now just machines? Because they have the moniker of Cybermen. So I'm curious to see how far that will go. Hmm. There was one thing I think that no, I think you know, like my, my my main point of appreciation for the Cybermen in this was that line of we've moved beyond. Like these petty concepts of revenge. It's like our, ma- our main focus now is to ensure our survival. I like, that's like, as I said, what was stated in Ten Planet has now come full circle in the moon base. Mm.
0: Okay. So we've gone through our doctor our companions, our story-based companions, a couple of tangents and our villains so now we're on to our overall thoughts on this story, so Paddington I will mm. put the ball in your court what were your overall thoughts of the story?
1: Cool, so you know me you put an alien menace in an isolated science base with, you know, like various personnel of, you know different nationalities, I'm sold on it straight away Um. I, the thing the, on the moon. Yes, the thing on the moon. Essentially, that's what it is. The thing on the moon. <laughs> no, like, so as I said, like the setup is very similar to the Ten Planet, but I think it's an evolution of that story, along with the whole ethos of the evolution of Cybermen. Um, I think it works slightly better here because there's more of a horror element to it. Uh, no, I lo- I really enjoyed Ten Planet. I really did. I think I enjoy this one just a small bit more. Um, but obviously, ten pounds is like you know forever etching our hearts as goodbye, Bill. But um, anyway, I what this kind of reminded me of the opening fifteen minutes of First Contact, hmm. when the Borg have set up shop in one of the, um, the 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 cargo compartments of the Enterprise. I know they're dragging fucking crew members. Yeah, and everyone's commenting
0: on how the um, there's, a,
1: there's power fluctuations.
0: that power least. fluctuations and the what's the word i'm looking for the environmental controls or i don't yeah yeah i i can i can see that i can yeah. that is a really good comparison
1: and like the the cybermen like they have similarities to the borg in the sense of like you know this whole assimilation thing of conversion and um just spreading of their life <laughs> lifestyle <laughs> spreading of their um society um I I again I just love this whole thing of like you know we've moved beyond this type of stuff because our whole concept is to move beyond emotion uh, versus say the Daleks which is like they're so they are emotional but they're all, all their emotions are negative. It
0: is it is missing one thing from being a very nice first contact parallel. There is no quotes from Moby Dick.
1: I was going to say that there's no Dixon Hill uh, section where like the the doctor is there with a Tommy gun and a fedora hat, but. Oh, Moby no. Dick. <laughs> uh, I'm struggling. Remind me of the Moby Dick quote from First Contact.
0: Uh, and he climbed upon the whale's white hump. It's that the start of that section. Oh, it's okay. basically um, Lily. Is her name Lily? Um, basically, calls Picard Ahab. Yes. And then they make a comment about how oh, do you not have books in the future? Okay. And then he quotes, and he and he climbed upon the whale's white hump, which is meant to be when Ahab eventually encounters the whale. And then Lily Com, so she's never actually
1: she read it. <laughs> yeah, and then Patrick Stewart played Ahab in a TV version of Moby Dick. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But we talked about like the the really good character moments. We talked about the incredible supporting cast. Um. That being said, there's some deductions that I have. Those being, Ben's very out of character moment, because it, it did spoil a small bit. It's it did spoil a small bit of the story for me. Because afterwards, like I'm kind of like everything that Ben does, I'm watching it with kind of a tinted, a tinted view, and I just felt so out of character. Also, the Cybermen make a reference to the Doctor. We know you, or we know of you, and that's it. Then it's it's completely left.
0: It it, it sort of reminds me of they do make mention the Daleks make mention in Power of the Daleks that they know him as well.
1: Yeah, and again, it's complete. It's completely left. Um, which and that that kind of that just bothered me because I was like where like you know because I don't at that stage oh you know, yeah his name had been said so the cyberman would obviously know like we know of your name but you are not as described or whatever the case may be maybe you've upgraded <laughs> um, so that brings it down to a 4 out of 5 for me okay
0: so for me I'll do the positives first um, yeah. one of the things that I've spoken about before and I may have mentioned it with 10th Planet
2: mm-hmm. um, but I mentioned it with
0: a few of our stories that take place in the future yeah, is we have a multicultural future, which I love. Mm. Um, like they did go a little bit stark at Atlantis about it, where they actually have people's countries <laughs> like on them as a patch. But we see people from different countries. We had Britain, we had um, Australia, we had um, Fra-
1: France, France and Den- Denmark, Germany. Denmark.
0: Yeah, so that was great. I love that because in terms of a science fiction program that's meant to be showing the future, I always love when science fiction programs show multiculturalism as the norm in the future.
1: And like that, we talked about then the Ten Planets when they had like um, Russian personnel or mm. they, had, they, they had this thing like, or like uh, yeah, that the Russians were involved with the Antarctic mission. Yeah. I was like, this isn't the fucking stages of the Cold War. Mm. Like that's a really kind of shoot for the moon type thing to say at that point in time.
0: Yeah and it really to be honest it's actually a little bit of a criticism on modern Doctor Who because yeah. in modern Doctor Who everything is very British. All of the members of UNIT are British. Everyone is British oh. um, except when a story is taking place in another country on purpose. Well, um,
1: that can kind of be said for Classic Who because when Unit is there, it's predominantly British.
0: Yeah, but then uh, the Seventh Doctor story yeah. saves them because they deliberately make a point
2: of <laughs> making Unit um, Unit. Yeah. Uh,
0: but I, I love that anyway. So that, that was a big positive for me. I love that in, in science fiction. Um, it's, it's one of the things I loved with Stargate Atlantis was that like Stargate issue one was a US military operation. Mm. Atlantis was a Earth operation which is great. Um, although I think it is a little bit out of character for him I will use my headcanon of Ben one day wants to serve on a submarine. I love Polly and Ben signing up and the reason why I love it so much is because Polly and Ben are younger than Ian and Barbara. Certainly in maturity I think. Yes. Um, and probably chronologically as well.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Um,
0: but they are just as capable of being left to their own devices without the doctor and coming up with a scientific solution mm. to a problem.
1: Well, we've said before, that's kind of the hallmark of a good companion that they just don't sit alone waiting to be rescued.
0: Yeah. And so I love that. It's the two of them. As I'm, as I'm waiting around to be rescued, they're working on a scientific solution to the problem because neither of them are scientists. Do <laughs> you know? Um, they have some passing general knowledge, and that's what I love. And the other thing that I love is, like I've mentioned, lots of positives in general. But the other thing that really stands out to me is we have no stupid human antagonist in the story. Yep. It's the one of the things I didn't like about Ten Planet was you had the commander was a dick. You had that guy that we said that um, Nils was kind of a, 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 a co- oh,
1: yeah. yeah, him.
0: Dobson or Dawson or whatever it was. um it's only beginning with D <laughs> yeah he was siding with the Cybermen at one point point. Mm. and we didn't have any of that it was very much humans together united for one purpose and I love that
1: it's the independence day thing of where like all the surviving air forces of the world fucking combined together for one big final assault that's yeah. like that that's how I kind of go like that's that's the overall achievement <laughs> you know, yeah. We all like, work together, but who knows.
0: However, as with all the positives, there are negatives.
1: Honestly, it's the Romans, or the Aztecs, or Edge of Destruction, or...
0: <laughs> all very
1: true.
0: <laughs> all very very true. As is often the case when we have positives, <laughs> we're also going to have negatives. <laughs> Smartass. Um, Ben's mischaracterization in that interaction with and I'm going to say specifically in the interaction with Polly yeah, because Jamie I think there's at least a somewhat justifiable reason for them to be having a bit of a dick measuring contest which is Jamie you were ill lie the fuck down Mm. do you know Um, but particularly with Polly who's obviously been established with Ben since the beginning that mischaracterization, I think whatever Kit was trying to accomplish, he missed the mark. Whatever it was, it, it didn't come across in a positive way at all. Yeah. Um
1: The thing with Jamie reminded me of their initial interactions with the Highlanders. Yeah. Yeah, but And but then they go back to being underwater menace bros, so it's
0: <laughs> There's not really a whole lot for Jamie to do. Mm. although then again like we said that isn't really necessary and I did love that his superstitious stuff played into it yeah. and I do love as well that like at the end of the episode where he's like you know oh, don't go looking into the future yeah. or second sight is a dangerous thing or
1: something yeah like that. Uh, it's just like oh it's a dangerous thing doctor
0: <laughs> don't piss off Scottish
1: I didn't put on an accent you did I didn't you did I went Kerry
0: <laughs> no there was a little bit of a lilt, a little bit of a further north lilt. Um,
1: fine limerick
0: (laughs) the biggest issue i had though was the moments of super dumb there were several (laughs) moments of super dumb i mentioned the one with polly and um well the two with polly really so the one about her not pushing the issue but again polly didn't push the issue neither did the doctor or ben like you have polly who you know and trust telling you there is a Cyberman on this base, and neither of the t- of the other two go looking for them either. And that to me, like if you compare it to the reaction the Doctor gave in *Power of the Daleks*, of there is one Dalek, mm-hmm. and his like utter shit, shit, shit. We were missing a shit, shit, shit moment here. Yeah, do you know, or at least a reaction from that moment. And the other thing was the Cyberman hiding in the medbay under a blanket, like <laughs> a child can't even hide that way, no matter how hard they try, <laughs> you know. And this is a big honking, like six foot five, Cyberman. And uh, the other thing, now Kit Paddler is a scientific advisor, right? Mm-hmm. But this is a very specialized, very important scientific base on the moon and yet no actual alarms go off when someone digs underneath it and breaks a hole into where you store your food there's a comment made about oh it's like the rats got into them Mm. there shouldn't be rats on the moon (laughs) why are you not having a bigger reaction to this why was there no base security to a breach in the atmosphere?
1: Um, we've done, yeah, like, this is like what? Story number 33 now, right?
2: Yeah.
1: No, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. But 10th planets is the only time that Earth has had extraterrestrial contact.
0: Mm, present Earth.
1: Yeah. was down.
0: 10th Planet
1: the Ten Planet was in nineteen eighty, yeah. But no, what I'm what I'm saying is like that Dalek invasion of Earth is like way beyond this,
2: yeah.
1: um, and then everything else is either on a alien planet or it's in the past or wherever it is. But this, but Ten Planet is the first time that the Earth has ever had a, an encounter with an extraterrestrial with life. Possibly. So, if. When Mondas was destroyed, and therefore, like the, I suppose, the belief is that all Cybermen went with it, maybe there's like a kind of a closed-minded thing that in like the 90-odd years that has happened, that there's been no other contact with any form of extraterrestrial life. Maybe that's just it.
0: Oh, no. I'm not... Okay, the extraterrestrial thing is purely... You comment that rats got into your food, and you oh, seem yeah. to state this fine. There shouldn't be rats on the moon unless you brought them with you. My issue was, you have a structural breach in a base on the moon.
1: Oh, right. I thought you, uh, yeah, because like, when you were digging underneath it, and I was like, the structural breach. Well, yeah, like I suppose, like that you would think on the moon you would want something, but then again, like, okay, I, you're 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 a science person. When the the observation that gets the hole blown in it, and like uh, Benoit and Hobson are trying to. Patch her up.
0: Oh, that, that's complete bollocks. Yeah, because like,
1: <laughs> wouldn't they have been sucked out of that hole?
0: Uh, well, th- the moon isn't exactly a vacuum, you do have gravity on the moon, so there is hmm. a certain thing there. But yeah, no, the fact that things should they shouldn't be able to talk, they should have lost all atmosphere immediately. They didn't have access to any oxygen, they should have had them with an oxygen mask or whatever. But yeah. I was forgiving that part. Right. Because... Like, that's... A fudging of what would happen.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What I'm not forgiving is... Because, also... Breach... Oxygen masks. Breach... Fuck all nothing.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Do
0: you know? That one, well... Scientifically... No. At least you know, they had the whole thing of people not being able to breathe and the oxygen mask dropping down whatever. But, like, you have a breach in your base and no one knows. There's air pressure problems and you can't isolate them. Like, what the what? So, for those negatives, yeah. which, unfortunately, because it's the Cybermen, the Cybermen were so strong, it sort of under it undermined the evilness and the threat of the Cybermen because mm. you've got scientists who can't see two feet in front of their faces. Yeah. Like, oh my god, a Cyberman just went out that door. Oh well we walked like five feet down the corridor and we didn't see anything. <laughs> go further.
1: <laughs> go six feet. <laughs> <laughs> like starting... oh
0: my god the Cyberman just left with a body. No? You're not gonna go anywhere, okay? Okay, cool.
1: I think the, I think Modern Who will have kind of spoiled it because you can hear those fuckers coming from a mile away.
0: <laughs> yeah, so those things, unfortunately, I think were put in, but I think there was weak development of them. I think there should have been further reactions. So with all of that in mind, I gave it a 3.75. I had wanted to give it a 4, but those negatives really irritated me and I really couldn't justify it. mm so I went three point seven five. It's a very nice evolution for the Cybermen, but for me, there was too much dumb <laughs> to justify higher than a three point seven five.
1: No, that's fair. That's fair. It's a good thing didn't, someone didn't step into a mop bucket. Uh, <laughs> but I, 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 I think we can both agree that it is a strong, It's a strong story despite its flaws.
0: Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. definitely. I just think that you have to turn your brain off. <laughs> a bit more than I would have liked.
2: Yeah.
1: But I suppose it's almost like um the fucking power of the Daleks you know, and the rebel's need for more chicken penny Arabiata in the canteen. Because like, <laughs> like it, it's as fucking good a reason as any that would present to wish in that story. Yep. Uh um, no, <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah.
1: Also I just I came across a clip of uh, Phil Jupitus doing an impression of Eddie Izzard and it's fucking hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool so that's it again for this week guys thank you for listening to our tangents in the cor- <laughs> along with everything else we discussed in this episode so we're back as normal next week with the Macra Terror
0: Ooh, what is yep. that claw going to be I'm assuming a
1: Macra yes whatever a Macra might be and yeah. because I know what it is, I is I've got to say it now I pissed myself laughing the entire time watching that story
0: oh wow okay it's gonna be an yeah. interesting week for me so yeah
1: Anyway,
0: <laughs> right. talk to you guys right. next
1: week bye guys